The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you will turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we will be looking at verses 31 and 32 this evening, along with several other passages of Scripture. The title of our sermon this evening is Life-Giving Truth. Now, as American people, one of the things that we love to talk about and think about is our freedom. And I'm glad about that. I think the freedom we talk about and enjoy really can only come from a Christian worldview. But there's an interesting contrast when it comes to how we discuss our freedom as a nation of people and how we discuss our freedom as Christians. When we look at our independence as a nation, when we celebrate something like Independence Day on July 4th, for example, it's the day when America achieved self-rule. Our nation's founders achieved it. But if you think about the Christian, the Independence Day for the Christian is the day when we relinquish self-rule. And as a nation, the objective was to escape the sovereign rule of a king. But as a Christian, the objective is to put ourselves under the sovereign rule of the king of kings. And in fact, in this short text we're going to be looking at this evening, Jesus is saying the only way, the only way you're going to find freedom is if you continue in my word, if you receive my word, and if you obey my word. Now, I will say that the contrast between the nation and the individual achieving true freedom is apparent because Jesus wasn't talking about political freedom. The church, since its inception, has always believed that political freedom is critical for religious freedom, and that's a good thing, and it's a thing worth dying for because Christianity believes in truth. And the church is one of the few places that the passion for freedom has never died out. Why? Because freedom is the product of truth. And in our passage, we're going to see that Jesus tells us that without the truth, there is no freedom. It's the truth that sets you free. You see, the Christian understanding of truth is that it's something that comes to us from God. It comes from the Bible. And so freedom isn't actually something that can be legislated. It can't be controlled by a dictator. It can't be controlled by the media. And and very prominent in our day is to recognize that society cannot redefine what it is. So the church doesn't look to the climate of their culture to, to get the truth or to refine the truth. In modern parlance, the truth is what it is. And will not be changed. So Christians don't get truth from a permissive society. Nor from an oppressive society. In a permissive society like most of Europe today for example. Christian, uh, Christianity always looks very conservative. But in an oppressive society. A place like China for example. Christians will always look like radical liberals. 
And that's because Christians have the ability to be radicals in every culture because they're able to judge the culture with a standard of truth that doesn't come from the culture itself. So you see, without truth, there's no freedom because you're beholden to what you are told, not to what is actually true. Now listen, as important as political freedom is, in our text and all throughout his ministry, Jesus is talking about a freedom that is even more fundamental than political freedom, without which your political freedom is no comfort whatsoever. And so as we continue in our series on spiritual depression, the idea of freedom is of vital importance for us. Uh, One of the hallmarks of spiritual depression in a Christian's life as we talked about last week, is that they're believing lies. You recall we talked about the lies that we believe, the lies that we preach to ourselves, lies about God, lies about ourselves as individuals, lies about the world and how it works. Spiritual depression is a false gospel that needs to be repealed by truth. And it's only when that happens that we can truly experience real freedom. Now, unfortunately, we want to think of freedom in the same way in our spiritual lives as we think about our nation, and it gets us into trouble because unlike political freedom, a Christian says of themselves as an individual, the day I relinquished my autonomy, the day I relinquished my self-rule was the day I found my freedom. But here's the thing, Any, anyone who has really understood this, who has really understood what being a Christian really means has never believed this something to be repressive or tyrannical, but exactly the opposite. Giving up your autonomy or your supposed autonomy is the spiritual sen- in the spiritual sense is to gain freedom that you can't even imagine. And at the heart of what's needed to to rise up from a place of spiritual depression is to arise from self-autonomy, to know and believe and focus on, on working out the truth in our lives and rejecting the false gospel that we tend to preach to ourselves. And so this evening, I wonder if you're in the bondage of spiritual depression, and if so, are you longing to be set free? So let's see how Jesus responds. John chapter 8, very simple, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen. Now, spiritual freedom and political freedom agree on what freedom feels like. In fact, in some ways, it's the definition of freedom across the board, if you just define it in terms of how it feels to you as an individual. Freedom is the fulfillment that comes from doing what you most deeply desire and also having the ability to do it. But the difference between what Christianity says and what society says is that If you know that uh, man is not what he ought to be, which we all agree with, if you know a human being is sinful and selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed, your desires are at war with each other. So freedom isn't actually the ability to do anything that you want. 
It never has been. No, freedom actually happens when we obey our deepest desires. Those desires that God puts into our hearts. Because the thing we most desire to do is to be fulfilled by submitting to our creator. That's what we were built for. But we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to that reality. So you won't likely find many who disagree with freedom being the fulfillment that comes from doing what we most deeply desire. But the Bible tells us that this only happens when we are completely and totally dependent upon God. It seems counterintuitive. So how does that work? Where does uh, Jesus direct us? And if you come to me in a state of spiritual depression and you want some direction on the way out of that, this is the main place we're going to spend our time. And and certainly what I've talked about uh, several times already, what does true Christian freedom look like so that we might find light in the darkness of our soul in the days or weeks or months of spiritual depression? Well, the first thing that Jesus says is that we must abide in the word of God. Now, throughout the Bible, in English, we see this word abide used in various ways. But in this instance, Jesus is saying, if you stay put in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Stay put in my word. Abide. Remain. Be unmoved from my word. And that's just plain, simple, helpful wisdom, isn't it? If we are to experience True freedom in the midst of spiritual depression, our minds must be fixed on the word of God. We looked at that briefly last week. We must abide in the truth. We cannot let the false gospels we are prone to tell ourselves, we can't allow them to dwell in our minds and in our hearts. We have to fight to expel the falsehoods and instead hold on to the truth. However, I have enough experience with those who've walked through seasons of spiritual depression to know how difficult that can be when you're in that place. The mind can be foggy. Thinking about anything at all is difficult for any period of time. So sustaining our thoughts on something like scripture can oftentimes feel impossible. But this is why I said we must fight to expel the falsehood and to hold on to the truth. Your mind, like the rest of you, has the effects of the fall on it. We talk about the noetic effects of the fall. We're talking about the the effects of the fall on one's mind. If you uh, think about 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says that the mind is hardened. In 1 Timothy 6.5, he calls the mind depraved. In Ephesians 4, he says, men are darkened in their understanding, alienated in uh, in the life of God. In Romans 1, 21, he says, thinking has become futile and foolish because men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He warns against being taken captive by philosophy. And he, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So we can't be naive about what we're up against. If there's a place in our lives for abiding in the word of God, something dramatic has to happen to overcome the obstacles of our natural minds. Now, of course, most essentially, we must be born again, as Jesus said, but we also must be continually renewed by the Holy Spirit. 
This is why Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Every day is a battle to not be conformed to the world. Every day is an ongoing battle to renew our minds. Every day we must wage the war between our ears. And one of the ways we begin to lose the battle, one of the ways we begin to fall into spiritual depression is when we stop fighting that battle. We believe the lie that we can make it through the day without our minds and hearts being fixed upon the word of God. But Jesus puts that faulty thinking to death in a very simple statement. If you stay put in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's very simple. Now, there are quite a few similar types of statements throughout the scriptures. I briefly mentioned one last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does that mean exactly? It's easy to say such things. They're certainly good and right and true, but we need to ask the Bible some questions. How do I do that? How do I take every thought captive? What does that look like? One thing that looks like is what we see in passages like Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Paul begins with an imperative to put off being anxious. Uh, The Bible says that often. Uh, Do not be anxious. And you might read that when you're anxious especially and say, great, I'd like to do that, but how? I don't want to be anxious. I'm reading this command, do not be anxious. But what is that? How does that even work? And it's important. You should ask questions of the Bible and seek those answers. So this one, Paul gives this imperative, put off being anxious with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. But he goes on further to give further instruction on how to be able to continue to walk in the peace of God that we are not anxious And he writes in Philippians chapter four, verses six through nine, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So how does Paul direct us to take every thought captive? How can we abide in the word? How can we stay put in the word of God? Think about these things, Paul tells us. Whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise. In other words, set your mind on the things above. The truth of God's word, the promises of God, instead of what we most often do, which is to dwell on our circumstances and the things of this world that do bring anxiety, that bring you away from what God has done and what God is doing into areas of concern that are fleeting and temporary. 
And so our tendency is to, to emphasize in our minds and in our hearts the things that are temporary instead of dwelling on and thinking about and meditating on the things that are eternal. It's completely backwards. And so, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we may find ourselves in a state of spiritual depression is because we fix all of our attention on what's going on right here and right now. And all of us have different issues that raise our eyebrows. We all have different situations that we encounter that will elicit different responses from all of us. But we all have things that we need to be particularly aware of that will tend to move our thinking, to move our hearts away from thinking about the right things to dwelling on lesser things that begin to cloud our minds and keep us from hoping in and having trust in God and all that he has promised. But if we're really free, if we're truly free, as Jesus says, we will realize I do not have to allow these things to take away from me abiding in the truth. Trials will come, trials will go. Difficult seasons of life will come and they will go. Suffering will come and go. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So where do I want to set my heart and my mind? Surely not on fleeting things, but on the eternal everlasting truth. That's not to say that our current circumstances aren't important or that we shouldn't care about them at all, but we need to think about them and process them in light of the eternal realities. So let's take it a step further in our second point this evening. If I want to abide in God's word, if I want to stay put in the word of God, where should I look that I might find my way out of despair, that I might find light in the midst of darkness? Well, we must believe the promises of God. Very simple. If I'm going to be helped out of spiritual depression by the word of God, I must fix my mind and my heart on the right things within God's word, namely God's promises. Now, of course, we want to look at God's promises appropriately in their proper context, knowing uh, that the actual promise that we're reading is for us. It's not tied to a specific person or people group or, or uh, context, uh, but if we read it in context, we can see there are many promises in God's word for believers today. That's a very important thing. Again, from our text, if we abide in God's word, which is truth, the truth will set us free, free, free from anxiety, free from spiritual depression, free from the darkness that we can rightly, joyfully, and faithfully walk in the light. So let's consider Psalm 77, and you can turn there if you'd like. We'll be there for a bit. It's a psalm of despair. In Psalm 77, we have the writer of the psalm despairing. He's sleepless. He's overcome with fear. He's overcome with anxiety, and he thinks about God, and as he thinks about God, he actually becomes more pained. He has many questions about God, And he's asking questions of God and his seeming absence in his life in the midst of his miseries. So Psalm 77, beginning in verse one, I'm going to read through verse nine. He writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. 
My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. He can't sleep. I love how he says that. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Are you ever that honest before God? That you would say in prayer or you would honestly confess to another that this is where your heart is? These are the very words of Scripture. And in many ways, instructing us that it's okay and it's good and it's right to be honest before the Lord because he knows your heart better than you do. And it's in our confessing these things and our acknowledging these things that God begins to work. But as we read these words, they all seem so hopeless and so dark, don't they? And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you might be there right now. And if not, you may very well find yourself in that place at some point in your walk with Christ. We are humans, we are frail, we are prone to weakness in our faith and in our assurance. And so this may be our very cry. And isn't it merciful of God to show us this in his word? We're not left with a Bible that makes it look like we need to have it all together. We see the brokenness, we see the anguish, we see the pain that comes with life in a fallen world as we desire our longing. Remember, our deepest longing is to walk in holiness and godliness and hope, but that's at war with our reality here in this fallen world as we live our lives in the flesh. And we fall short or we hit walls or we come to the end of ourselves only to find that we're not even low enough yet. And so it's merciful of God to put these honest words in the scriptures, to have allowed the writers to pen such honest truth for us. But that's not the end of the psalm, is it? What happens next? The psalmist is in despair. He begins to abide in the truth. He begins to set his mind on the things above. This is a great example of being honest about our situation and then turning to preach the truth to ourselves that we can abide in the word. And so he begins to meditate on a story of the scriptures, beginning in verse 10, Psalm 77, 10 through 20. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the most high. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. 
Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's he doing? He's thinking about these things that Paul instructs us to think about, whatever's true and lovely. Right, these promises of God's word, these realities of God's work. And here he's describing the Israelites standing with Moses and Aaron. One side, they're, they're locked in by the Red Sea. The other side, they're about to be slaughtered by Pharaoh's armies. There was no obvious escape. And it's almost as if we can look at Moses' situation and say, Moses, don't despair. Can you imagine can you imagine standing with Moses and saying, Moses, don't despair. No, you'll be fine. How am I going to be fine? Right? In his current circumstances, no one would question why it would be that Moses is despairing. I'm either going to lose my head or I'm going to drown. Those are my two options right now. But the psalmist recalls the work of God to comfort his own soul. Because unlike Moses in that moment, but like us, he knows the whole story, right? He recounts the full story to himself and for us. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the waters. You led your people like a flock by the hand. So what's the point? Why does he do this? Your circumstances aren't the same as what Moses encountered, surely, but your God is the same God. The same God who delivered the Israelites through the sea calls you son or daughter. He knows your heart. He knows your circumstances. And he has you right where you are for your good so that you will become more like Jesus. God will see you through your circumstances. Do you feel surrounded? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel like there's nowhere for you to go? You can use God's word, just like the psalmist does here, as a pledge of God's character to get you through whatever it is that's before you and whatever it is that surrounds you, whatever has you hemmed in on either side. In recounting his own spiritual depression and using God's promises to abide in the truth that he might know the truth in the midst of the darkness, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, I like in my times of trouble to find a promise which exactly fits my need and then to put my finger on it and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so by carrying it out in my case. I believe that this is thine own writing and I pray thee, make it good to my faith. I believe in the plenary, that's the full or complete inspiration. And I humbly look to the Lord for a plenary fulfillment of every sentence that he has put on record. Perhaps you think it's brash or pompous that we would turn to the Lord and call on him to fulfill his promises. But this is what we see all throughout scripture. So brothers and sisters, we have a compassionate God. 
And he, he loves to bless us in our times of need and weaknesses. And we must use the very things that he's given us. He holds out his word as the remedy for us in the midst of the darkness of our souls. That we would abide in his promises. But we have to go to God's word. That we might find hope and assurance once again. It's here. It's in God's word that the end of what Jesus promises in our final point is fulfilled. Finally, the spiritually depressed person must know the true freedom of God. Abiding in the truth, believing in the promises of God, leads us into a knowledge of this true freedom which Jesus talks about. We can truly know freedom, spiritual freedom, not just as a saved people, but saved people who live in the peace of God each and every day, knowing his pleasure, enjoying communion with him. There are many things we can look at that will help us orient our minds and our hearts rightly, thinking about what is true and what is life giving. We could think on God's character and his attributes. It's always a good thing. We can reflect on his sovereignty. We can reflect on his loving kindness. We can meditate on great theological truths like our adoption or the atonement. These are all wonderful things and we should think about and study these things. But in our times of greatest despair, I believe we find the most freedom in recalling all of the benefits of having God as our portion. Lamentations chapter three and verse 24 says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's a significant phrase. We see that in the Old Testament several times, this idea of God being our portion. And it alludes to the dividing of the land of Canaan among the Israelites by Lot. Now remember, each tribe was given a specific portion of land and that was theirs where they could dwell and they could rest fully satisfied in the pleasant land. So saying that the Lord is my portion is to say that we rest fully satisfied through affliction and through uh, distress on all accounts, we are satisfied in the Lord. We will hope in the Lord and he supports and bears us up so that we're not fainting and sinking in the evil days ahead. So you not only, you have not only a witness above you, but within you. And so while the days may seem dark, while your heart may seem cold, you can have a firm resolve to hope in the Lord and sweetly trust in the Lord and quietly and patiently wait upon the Lord until God should return the darkness to light and turn your sad winter into a blessed summer. Now, I know we've looked at quite a few texts this evening, but I'm wanting to illustrate for us exactly what we're talking about once again, this abiding in the word of God in a very practical way. We're going to use God's word in all of its various forms that we may know the true freedom of God. So the last text, I'd love for you to turn there with me, is Psalm 103. Seeing truth to deliberately remember and abide as the children of God, finding hope in God's promises, finding hope in all of God's benefits. This is the very purpose of Psalm 103. So I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but we, we will walk through it 
And I'll give you some things to think about as you go later, it's your homework, to go back later and to read through this and to meditate on this text. Psalm 103, first verses one and two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So he's doing exactly what we've been talking about, right? What's he doing? He's preaching to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's critical that we take this very important practice in our lives of preaching to ourselves. When trials come, when anxieties rise in our hearts, when we're unassured in our standing with God, when we feel deserted, when we feel alone, we must preach to ourselves and do it just as we see the psalmist doing right here. Counseling ourselves to remember the benefits of God. And what are those benefits? Well, brace yourselves. I see at least 19 of them in Psalm 103. I'm not going to detail all of them tonight. You can breathe easy. But I'm going to mention all 19 of them. You can jot them down and uh, go back and look at them later. So what are these 19 benefits? Verse 3, number 1, he pardons all of your iniquities. Number two, verse three, he heals all of your diseases. If not immediately, he will when he returns or takes you home. Number three, verse four, he redeems your life, not only your soul, from the pit of destruction and hopelessness. Number four, verse four, he loves you, he is kind to you, and he feels compassion towards you. Number five, verse five, he fills you to full with good things. Number six, verse five, he renews your strength, causing you to soar like an eagle. Number seven, verse six, and verse seven illustrates it. He acts in righteousness and justice toward the oppressed. Number eight, verse eight, he is merciful. Number nine, verse eight, he is gracious. Number 10, verse eight, he is slow to anger. He's not short fused. Number 11, verse eight, he abounds in loving kindness. He pours it out. It's not in trickles, it's not in drips, but he pours it out. Number 12, verse nine, he will not hold on to his anger against you that has already been propitiated in Jesus Christ. Number 13, verse 10, he has not treated you as your sins deserve. Number 14, verse 11, his loving kindness is great toward those who continue to fear him. Number 15, verse 12, he has removed your transgressions and their punishments far from you. Number 16, verses 13 and 14, he has compassion on your frail, weakened frame. Number 17, verse 17, his loving kindness is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Number 18, again, verse 17, his righteousness is to children's children. In other words, he will be faithful in his promises towards you. And number 19, verse 19, his sovereign rule remains over all, which includes every single detail of your life. This is just one passage of scripture in which to abide in the truth that sets us free. And it's rich, isn't it? There's so much here. Brothers and sisters, we serve a great God. 
He has promised us far more than we could ever hope or imagine or even, even think to ask for. And, and certainly, if, if we understand who we truly are as individuals in light of who God is, we can affirm that all of God's benefits are far greater than any of us ever deserve. But of course, we have to acknowledge that we do not know these promises apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of his sinless life. It is because of his death on the cross. It is because of his glorious resurrection, all on our behalf, that we can hope in God's promises. And so, friend, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of God are only but glimpses to you of what is available and yet what is unknown and unexperienced by you. If you have faith in Christ, on the other hand, if you trust in Christ, knowing that apart from him, all you have in yourself is sin and rebellion against your creator, he will grant you true repentance and you can walk in faith and life and hope and peace, knowing the pleasure of God and living in communion with him. And so the call for you to know peace, to fulfill that true desire of your soul, to walk in true spiritual freedom, to experience that, to know that, to live in that, is to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord is your portion, there is nothing to fear. There is no reason for despair. With the sea on one side and the challenging army on the other, the Lord will make a way. He will fill up all of your needs to an overflowing measure. And that is the life-giving truth that will set you free. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us to abide in him, to abide in his word, to abide in God's truth. And that truth will set us free. Amen. I'm gonna pray. As soon as I'm done praying, we are going to have a benediction and then the piano will play as we reflect before we dismiss. So let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for your great truth that sets us free. And we pray this evening, Lord, that you help us, Lord, each and every day to renew our minds and to think upon all that is good and right and true and lovely and honorable. Lord, we want to do the very thing that we see in the scriptures. We want to be honest before you about our hearts, not seeking to hide from you what you already know. And in our honesty before you, we want to be able to preach to ourselves from the scriptures all of the promises that you have given to us. Most importantly, most readily, this great promise that Christ is for us, that Christ has given all for us. And if Christ is for us, none can be against us. And so may we abide in that truth and may you receive all the glory and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Our benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, 
as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.